Uh, okay, so the panel uh, is called uh, Can Investors Skip the Bus Without Boycotting the Boom? The general theme here is going to be market timing. And everybody tells you you can't market time. Uh, especially academic economists hate the idea of market timing. They like the idea that the market is perfectly efficient because it's magical. Uh, okay, so first off, I'm going to introduce the panel uh, in alphabetic order. Uh, Chris Casey, uh, over at the end here, is Managing Director at Windrock uh, Wealth Management. Uh, Doug Casey may or may not show. Uh, he apparently has a full schedule. <laughs> uh, he knows we're here. He may come in halfway through, in which case uh, I will note him. Uh, so for the time being, uh, he is Chairman of Casey Research. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, know him. Uh, Adrian Day. Uh, as Chairman and CEO of Adrian Day Asset Management, uh, and Rick Rule, uh, as President and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Uh, I'm Peter St. Ange, uh, I'm an economist, and I write a newsletter. Uh, okay, uh, if you are familiar with Austrian economics, uh, one of the issues there is uh, data, whether or not to use data. Uh, I'm actually an Austrian who likes data. I think everybody at this uh, panel also likes data. Um, we rely on data quite a bit. Uh, so very quickly, uh, I'm just going to run through sort of where we stand uh, in the economy at the moment. This is just so everybody's on the same page. Not all of us uh, follow financial markets. Uh, apparently there are many people who were not aware that China was doing anything. So those of you who know, China is going through a very interesting parabolic uh, boom-bust moment uh, in its stock markets. But at any rate, many of us smartly do not follow financial markets day to day. So I'm just going to kind of orient everybody. Uh, and then we're going to go around the panel, and the first question that I want to ask each panel member, and when you hear opinions, we all come from a variety of backgrounds and interests. Uh, the fundamental question is, uh, first, can investors time the business cycle? Right? There is a difference of opinion on whether this is worthwhile or whether this is just um, snake oil. Uh, I, my personal view is that you can, but at any rate, uh, I'd like to hear the rest of the panel's opinions. Uh, are there general principles that you use, such as momentum? Uh, shoeshine boys who have stock tips, right? There are many rules of thumb in finance to use to identify a particularly speculative period, and so I'd be curious. Uh, all of these uh, members have quite a bit of experience in financial markets, so I'd be quite curious um, what uh, indicators they use, uh, if there are particular data indicators as well, of course. Uh, and then at that point, we're going to take audience questions. Um, so uh, any questions you have about financial markets or about uh, the subjects we discuss, uh, please don't feel bashful. Okay. Okay, so at that point, I want to turn over to the panelists. Uh, I, I guess I'll go uh, alphabetically as a default. So you're always first, Chris. Doug, we're here, you would still be first, so there's no hope. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the question is can you time the market? Can you time the market? Tibet, what do you mean by timing? I guess is an issue, too, because eventually everyone's right about something. Um, are we talking about six months, two years? It also begs the question of, does it really matter? And that sounds strange, right? Well, you want to know when something's going to happen. But whenever you look at the market, I think you look at three things. You look at magnitude of a change, you look at direction, and you look at timing. So for instance, US stock market's obviously overvalued by any metric. Um, so you know the magnitude of a potential correction. I think we know the direction through Austrian economics that's inevitable there'll be tremendous crash in equities. And the greater the certainty of that direction and the greater the knowledge about the magnitude, I think timing is less important. As Rick did uh, yesterday a presentation on, it's better be, to be prepared than to predict. You know, I agree with that. And so can you time exactly? No. So should you crawl into a cave and be out of equities and bonds completely? Maybe not. It depends on your situation. Um, 
But there are, Austrians do have methods where we do try to time the markets. And Mark Skousen went through this in his book two years ago, Viennese Wealth Through Wall Street. There's, since interest rates are the key to business cycle theory for the Austrians, it all revolves around looking at the structure of interest rates. So do you have an inverted yield curve, meaning our rates higher at the beginning? That tends to indicate a recession maybe coming up out. There's also a thing called the Wexellian um, differential. So you're looking at different rates between the natural rate of interest and what corporations have, their rates of return. And so there are methods uh, to look at this from a technical perspective. I agree timing's important, but I just want to put in a context. I think magnitude and direction are far more important. If you have that right, timing's not as big of an issue. But then again, my clients would tell me something differently. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with um, everything that uh, Chris said. I, I think when, when we talk about market timing, we have to really ask what, what we mean by that, because often when people talk about market timing, they're talking about buying at 10 o'clock in the morning and selling at 11.15. <laughs> and, you know, that, in my mind, can't be done. That's, that's nonsense. But um, if you talk about timing the major boom-bust cycles, that can certainly, you know, Austrian economics certainly helps us with that, and that certainly is something that is possible. Um, uh, but as, as, as Chris just said, one doesn't always get the timing right. In fact, one, I, I think we, we would admit that normally our timing is to be early, uh, not in a deliberate sense, um, but just, you know, um, you, you see these things coming and you see them coming perhaps ahead of when they actually happen. Um, I think Rick will probably give us his wonderful aphorism for that. Um, I think the other thing is uh, to say when you're talking about actually timing, so we're talking here about timing major booms and busts. If you're talking about timing markets, um, you know, I don't even try to time markets, but as a value investor, when you think about it, you wind up being a, value, uh, a timer because when markets are inexpensive, you find a lot of values, so you buy equities. And when markets are overvalued, you don't find a lot of values, so you're not buying very much. So you wind up being a market timer without setting out to be one. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned, um, Peter, was, um, you know, bubbles and time, uh, you, you know, in, um, indicators of bubbles. You've, you've mentioned in a few of your slides of parabolic curves. That's very important. You don't have a bubble. You don't have a bubble if a market goes up 5 or 10% every year for 20 years. That's not a bubble. A bubble always ends with a parabolic um, move upwards. Um, obviously, clearly, one of the indicators of a bubble is extreme valuation. Again, you don't have a bubble if, if things are selling at five times earnings. Um, it, and you don't, uh, but the other indicator that's very important, I think, is, is just that it's, it's talked about everywhere. It's talked in the press, it's talked about at dinner parties, um, people who aren't normally in the market are talking about it. So you saw this very clearly with the dot-com boom in the late 90s. You saw it very, very clearly with the housing boom in 2006. You know, people, everywhere you went, people were talking about housing. People were talking about the house they just bought with nothing down and so on and so on. So that's another very, very strong indicator of, of a bubble in my mind. The, um, 
the two gentlemen to my left have a broader-based experience in markets in that they deal in many sectors. Um, I deal in natural resources. And part of the consequence of a very sort of um, defined uh, expertise is that I'm, I find myself subjected to many cycles. Uh, when we talk about cycles, I don't have a cycle. I have many cycles. And I would suggest with regards to, first of all, the academic application of economic principles, I have to disclaim any expertise. I probably took three economics courses in my life and stayed awake through none of them. Um, the <laughs> for, for me, it's very, very, very sort of implied. The, the nature of the Austrian approach to me is just sort of arithmetic. And the idea of an efficient market theory, to me, is just an act. It's an example of academia gone wild, I think. It, it defies any empirical examination, I think, except for perhaps over a very long term, which is basically to say that booms correct themselves. Um, what I do is extremely cyclical. The basic area of my reputation is microcap. Natural resource stocks, which are probably the most volatile equities on the planet. An example today would be that our benchmark index, the thing that I'm rated against, is the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Index, which is off 83% in nominal terms and probably 90% in real terms in four years. The fourth experience I've had of this in my life, um, I would suggest that a, a ghost town is a metaphor for the cyclical nature of the natural resource business. What's ironic, and I think the important lesson of this, is what Adrian discussed. Um, the truth is, ironically, that a market that has fallen by 83% in price is 83% more attractive, exactly, than it was at the top of the cycle. <laughs> the arithmetic is very clear, but the attractiveness isn't always particularly clear, particularly to people who have ridden the cycle back down. And the question I've always had for myself is, um, although I've gotten it mostly right, I've never gotten it completely right. Um, at the top of a cycle, the way you notice that you're close to the top of the cycle is two things. You're extremely popular uh, if you're in a sector and you're at the top of the cycle. I uh, have had occasions at investment conferences in bull market cycles where I have gone into the men's room and normally polite, uh, intelligent people, mostly male I think, uh, have followed me into the men's room and formed concentric semicircles behind me asking me questions while I went about my business. <laughs> And it isn't that these are impolite people, it's that they're, they've taken leave of their senses as a consequence of the performance of the cycle. Um, conversely, in down market cycles, when I think my information is probably valuable, the attendance is fairly sparse and I'm certainly safe in the men's room. The question for me with regards to cyclicality comes to my own ability to monetize my performance in cycles. And I have to say my track record is spotty. Um, and I talked to a mentor of mine, Ned Goodman, about this. I said, you know, Ned, I understood in 2010 that there wasn't much to buy. And the rational response to the fact that there's not too much to buy is to do some selling. And I did some selling. But why didn't I do more? And Ned, who has one more cycle than I, said something very prescient. Uh, he said, hubris. The truth is, as an analyst, as an investor, if you're successful, you believe that your skills are better than your peers, and it's probably true. And you believe that your management teams are better than the competitors, and it's probably true. And you believe that your properties are better too, and it's probably true. And you believe that the financials are better, and that's probably true too. And none of it matters when you go off the edge. 
And what Ned said after making me sick was interesting in terms of how he made me well. He said, let's examine, let's examine the arithmetic of cyclicality in microcap equities. You, at the peak, whatever stocks you hold to the trough in the normal cycle, lose half of. It takes you four years to lose half. So you're down 50%, not including the time value of money. This has been a super cycle, of course, so now you're down 85 or 90%, which doesn't feel too good. When, if you're rational, uh, you recognize the errors of your ways and you clean out the portfolio of the stocks that clearly can't make it in a capital-constrained environment and go towards stocks that are positioned to the upturn and you enjoy the upturn, these are Ned word, Ned's words, not mine, you make 500 to 1,000% in the four to five year upcycle. And he said, if you think about the arithmetic over a decade of losing half and then making 1,000%, it's actually a pretty good business over time. It would be better if you could optimize. It would be better if at the top of the cycle, you put all your money in your jeans and went and did something else, except that isn't what happens. So in terms of what I do, not in terms of the broad equity markets, in terms of what I do, cycles are everything, except there isn't one cycle. There are different cycles for commodities. There are business cycles, not just in the US, business cycles around the world. There's cost of capital and interest rate cycles, and there's sub-cycles in that. An example would be right now, while the interest rates for five years have been falling fairly steadily, the cost of capital to non-investment grade resource developers has gone for the senior secured position from about 8% a year to 13.5% a year. That's a consequence of government policy, the Basel III Accords. So one who focused on cyclicality uh, would miss a $10 billion market anomaly. So sadly, the answer is nuanced. <laughs> Cycles matter, but it's very, very tough to employ cyclical strategies. Thank you. Yeah, that's a uh, great answer. Just to comment on that, that um, the idea uh, that we do have these, these sort of sub-cycles running within the main cycle, right, it's <clears throat> almost like planets rotating with moons or something. Um, and you know, this is interesting because what it means is that you have certain tendencies, right? So everybody on Wall Street, no matter what their economic orientation, knows that there are cyclical stocks and there are non-cyclicals, right? So you have utilities on the one end and you have you know, tech stocks or something on the other end, biotechs or something like this. Right, so these are not derived generally from theory. These are just derived from statistical correlations. People go back and correlate stuff. It's very easy to correlate nowadays. Um, but you know, so in one of the slides uh, earlier, I mentioned that um, uh, that developed nations, right, were not really experiencing uh, any kind of boom yet, right, and this is abnormal um, for a cycle. And so, to I think to a um, to sort of correlation-driven mainstream economist. Uh, this would be a mystery. Right? They would say something's wrong. You know, um, they would actually probably just ignore it. You know, they would say something like, "Well, you know, you've got a checklist of things that happen in cycles, and okay, we're seeing six of them, but we're not seeing the other four. Right? They would, in, in practice, probably do something like this. And I think that the orientation that we all come from, um, you know, we are pro-market in the sense that you know we're not sort of Keynesian. Uh, I think I can speak for the panel with that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're quite interested in the intricacies, right? So, you know, rather than this sort of Chicago orientation where you have one big cycle and everybody rides that, all of us are interested in these, you know, sort of like a river, right? A river, yes, runs downhill, okay, there's a certain direction to it. There's all kinds of little things happening in that river, right? And those little things are interesting. Those little things interact. As Chris mentioned earlier, right, the magnitude, right, is always important, right? It's not just the timing. The magnitude is different for every cycle, right? And so. The point being that 
you know, we have these large cycles, we have these little sub-cycles, right? Those are going to affect all of these asset classes differently. I myself am not an expert on resources, right? So I really appreciate the idea that, you know, uranium or, or copper, or, right? I mean, you have very different dynamics in all these different um, commodities based on how they're used uh, in the economy. Uh, okay, so, right, psychology and sub-cycles, I guess, uh, probably summarizes um, one of the distinct aspects of how all of us approach markets. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you because um, I didn't hear it explicitly. Um, are there particular indicators uh, that you use to determine uh, where we are in the meta cycle, or, or are you interested in particular sub cycles? Uh, you know, I'd mentioned a couple of indicators regarding the interest rates. We don't use them uh, particularly because I don't think they're all that necessarily effective. And given the magnitude of direction of where the market's headed, I think it's far less important. But I agree with what Adrian said in that you're de facto timing the markets by realizing when things are overvalued. It, Austrian economics lends itself to uh, contrarian <coughs> investing. It's perfect for it. Because if you think about it, all you have in contrarian <coughs> investing is that you want to find a market that's at an extreme level, either high or low, and you need a catalyst. You want a catalyst as, that brings about the inevitable place where the market should be. So what is a catalyst? Well, Austrian economics is a great one to have, right? It's knowledge of how markets truly work that are flat out being ignored by mainstream economists. So uh, we, I guess, de facto are timing the market in that sense, in that when we see things are extremely overvalued, we understand their context, and we'll lighten up on them, certainly. Okay. Um, okay, I, I want to um, cover one more question with the panel, and then I want to open up to, to audience questions. All right, so uh, Adrian Day, if I can ask you. Okay, so, so far we've been sort of discussing in, in the aggregate um, you know, over the long period, uh, talking about cycles. So right now, uh, what do you see? Are there, you know, any particular sectors that you're interested in, uh, geographic regions? Yeah, yeah. Um, good question. This is a very difficult time, I think. Um, and so my answer is a little more hesitant than it often is. I'm, I'm, you know, I love it when I can get up and thump the table and say, this is really cheap, this is really cheap, you've got to buy it, or conversely. You know, this is, this is ridiculously expensive. Um, w let me just say one thing um, to add to what uh, Chris said and what I said earlier about, uh, you know, a value investor is by default a market timer. Um, I, if you like, I, I also will add on to that some kind of, if you like, overlay, which is perhaps sometimes no more than a gut feeling of whether the risk in the market seems higher or lower at any particular point. Because, of course, markets, as we've already um, indicated and, and is very clear, are as much psychological as anything else. So, you know, indicators alone don't, don't tell you. So right now, I would say that the market, to me, has a very high risk, primarily not just because of Greece, which everyone, you know, has seen coming for years, but uh, because of China, which came a little more uh, suddenly out of, out of the blue. Um, so I'm being pretty cautious now. Anyway, let me, let me just, yeah, there's, there's um, one, two, three. Let me just say three main areas that I'm looking at that look very attractive to me right now. One in the US would be what are called these business development companies. Business development companies are companies that lend money to um, small and medium-sized business, normally private businesses. Um, normally equity, I mean normally debt, sometimes equity, they're all a little bit different. Some are more aggressive than others, some only do first lien, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et 
but as a sector, they are very, very cheap right now with very high yields. And that is primarily because of concern about higher interest rates. People think if interest rates go up, then a, a stock whose valuation is based on a dividend it pays will naturally decline in price. I think that's mistaken. We, we don't really have time to go into why I think that's mistaken, but I'm happy to talk to people if they want to know. So just to give um, an example, uh, Aries Capital, which is ARCC or NASDAQ, which is the largest of the dividend-paying BDCs. It's about a $6 billion company. So most of these companies are relatively small, but this is a $6 billion company. This is now paying 9.4% dividend yield, and the dividend yield is covered by earnings. It's trading at 13.5, something like that. I think it's a very, very good buy. A uh, 16.5, I'm sorry, 16.5. I think is a very, very good buy right now for someone who wants uh, 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 dividends. A second area I'm looking at but not buying yet is Hong Kong. When you see what happened in um, China, uh, this bled over uh, to Hong Kong and in a more dramatic sense than it did in the past because of the link between the Shanghai and Hong Kong um, exchanges that came in, was it earlier this year, I think, Jay? Um, and so that, that um, uh, bleed over has been much more dramatic than in the past. So some of the Hong Kong stocks I'm following have just collapsed. First of all, they've collapsed, but more importantly, they've collapsed to just extremely low valuation levels. I'm looking at companies now, for example, selling a two times earnings, selling a 15% of book, yielding eight, 9%. Um, now, I'm not buying it because I think, based on what you showed, I mean, very, very clearly, um, you know, that the China, the China thing is not over yet. Um, but I will probably start to, that's a very, very attractive pond in which to be fishing, in my mind. And I will probably start to pick away incrementally, um, I'm guessing now, over the next, um, you know, over the next um, two to three weeks or uh, two to three months, we'll start, we'll start buying. And some of those stocks are just very, very cheap. The third area, which I won't say too much about because of Rick, is obviously the gold stocks. I mean, the gold stocks are just at, and of course, I've said this before, that's what makes it difficult. And when I said it six months ago, it was also true. It's just more true now. When I said it a year ago, it was also true. The gold stocks are just at the most extreme levels of undervaluation um, imaginable. I've, I've hardly ever seen a market um, like this. If you look purely on price, which is less important, but look at price, as we know, I think some of you who follow it know, the XAU and other indices are back to the levels of, of 2003. That's in terms of price, but of course the gold price has gone up five times since then but the stocks are back where they were in 2003. If you look at gold versus gold stocks relative to gold, then we are at 70 year lows. They haven't been this cheap since 1946. That is an extreme level. And then if you look at other indicators, you know, price to book value, price to reserves, price to, I nearly said free cash flow, <laughs> price to cash flow, that was a joke. Um, you know, you're looking at basically 20 to 30 year lows. So these are very, very, very cheap right now. And if you have the courage and the money, um, I, I think this is a good area to be buying right now. Rick, uh, you, you might have more to add about gold or about other markets as well? The same question, basically? Yeah. Um, 
One of the things that I find myself adding in my own portfolio perversely is cash. Um, it's difficult because the yield on cash relative to even the CPI rate of inflation means that you're losing money holding cash. Um, there is a complacency in this market that to me defies the arithmetic behind the market. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be right or it doesn't mean I'm going to be right soon, but I believe it's a contingency worth insuring against. I had the good fortune to go into 2008 with a lot of cash. And I found that in periods of trouble, cash gave me the tool and the courage to take advantage of other people's mistakes or distress. And I'm not saying that we're going to have a big crash anytime soon, but I'm certainly not saying we aren't. And one of the things that I find myself adding is cash. Um, I've had periods of time in my life, and this is going to sound like a very non-rational answer, I've had periods of time in my life when I had a lot of cash and periods of time in my life when I didn't have too much cash, and I found I was happier in the former than the latter. Uh, I think cash is good for the nerves. And part of the essence of well-being, or, or wealth, I think, is well-being, and cash gives me an odd sense of well-being. I also think it's going to come in handy. I'm not entirely being a California lotus eater when I talk about happiness. I think cash is a tool. Uh, I agree with Adrian on the gold stocks. I'm not sure we're going to get immediate relief and I would point out to you that the gold mining industry is notorious for poor management teams, a deserved reputation. It's getting a little badder. The management teams are just bad now. They're not atrocious, which is really uh, an extraordinary accomplishment over the last 20 years. <laughs> so I'm attracted to the gold mining stocks because I'm, uh, I'm attracted to gold. People don't recognize this. This room might. But gold has been in a bull market for 14 months in currencies other than the U.S. dollar. And I would suggest that while the hegemony of the dollar won't go, won't be challenged, that gold, while it won't win the fight, will lose less badly. And I think the gold stocks uh, offer a decent um, juxtaposition of risk to reward. If the economists in the room uh, are correct in their suspicion that the U.S. government can't raise interest rates anytime soon because of the fragility of markets, the fragility of the economy, and the fact that they have interest payments of their own, then, and I'm not saying they're right, by the way, then certainly the BDCs, the business development companies that Adrian talks about are spectacularly cheap. Interest rate environments like this uh, favor spread lenders because the wholesale cost of capital is much less than the retail cost of capital. And the delta between their cost of capital, the BDC's cost of capital, and the price that they can charge for capital, quest, uh, pardon me, has brought us in this business. We have about $400 million lent, although <laughs> we don't borrow. Uh, we just employ our own capital. But the, the opportunities for spread lenders in the event that interest rates don't increase and that there isn't um, a credit contraction that would impede their asset quality and raise their cost of capital, Right now, the spread lending business is the best that I have seen it in a 40-year career in business. This is truly a perfect storm. Um, so that is attractive to me in our own business in natural resource lending. Um, the business is so good right now that I kind of feel like pinching myself. Uh, I sort of feel that maybe I'm oddly at the bottom of a resource cycle, at the top of the spread lending cycle. 
But if they can't raise interest rates, this business will go on until they do raise interest rates, which is a truly phenomenal place to be. The third place I am is, and I've always been in this position, but I'm really increasing my own allocations to deep value because the whole world has turned to momentum. And the subset of companies in mundane businesses that aren't growing but are generating cash and have spectacular balance sheets are so cheap they feel like they're free. There's a money manager named Jack Norberg in Southern California who buys companies that are selling at discounts to net networking capital, meaning that the market capitalization and all of the debt is less than the cash and the free working capital they have in their business. And if you can find a business, no matter how mundane, that generates free cash and hopefully distributes it by way of dividend, where the business is selling at a discount to working capital, what you found is a free bond. And the idea that people wouldn't want free bonds because there's no, mem no momentum in the stock is absolutely incredible to me. Uh, these are boring companies. Their stock charts look like the electrocardiogram of a corpse. Um, but if you're buying a business for $20 million that has $24 million in working capital and generates you know, a couple million dollars in cash, particularly if they're polite enough to give a million dollars a year back to the owner, you know, a 5% dividend yield. You know, from my viewpoint, that's just as close to heaven as you can get. Uh, it's boring, but in my business, if you can substitute boredom for terror, uh, you know, it's a pretty good trade. Great. Um, I was just going to step in uh, for one point on the uh, interest rates rising. Uh, I, I may be a contrarian. Uh, I think that the Fed actually will raise interest rates, and I think that the reason for that is that we want to be careful about evaluating um, government agencies based on their um, mission. Right? The, <laughs> the Fed's mission is to uh, improve the economy and make us all wealthy and employed and such. Um, but actually, uh, their, their real goal in life is to impress their friends. You know, um, as an institution, the single most important thing for the Fed is maintaining its independence. That is all it cares about, right? The economy, to heck with the economy, to heck with American people. This is not actually what they're after. What they're after is maintaining their independence. In order to maintain their independence, they have to keep inflation low. Okay, this is historically how central banks get taken over by Congress. If they get taken over by Congress, history is very clear, all parliaments are hyperinflationary. Okay. <laughs> You know, so uh, if Congress ever does take them over, which I encourage heartily, so that we can destroy the damn thing. Um, but at any rate, if they do get taken over by Congress, then we will probably have a hyperinflationary bout. That sequence is unlikely, but at any rate, if you ask what keeps Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke up at night, it is not the economy doing poorly. It is the Fed losing their independence, right? And Yellen is looking for every excuse she can find to raise race. You know, she's like, ah, Greece is, you know, it'll be out of the headlines tomorrow. You know, China, eh, you know, the Chinese, right? So she's, you know, looking for any excuse why she can say everything's cool so she can raise the rates. She's got to raise the rates because she's death. The uh, monetarists who make up the, you know, 95% of Fed economists, uh, they are convinced in the, they believe in the quantity theory of money, which basically says that the amount of money in the economy is going to eventually lead to inflation. This is generally true in the long run. Um, but at any rate, they are convinced of this, and so they are very afraid um, uh, of inflation, more so than they are of crashing the economy. There's always somebody to blame when you crash the economy, right? It's greedy Wall Street, or you know, there's always somebody. Foreigners, <laughs> whoever you need. Uh, okay, um, and just last question for the panel, um, for Chris. Uh, I also want to get your thoughts uh, about where we are at the moment, if there's any particular asset class. 
essay class to look at. Um, well, I agree with, with Rick and Adrian in that be liquid, have a lot of cash. Um, I would start looking definitely at the miners in the gold space. I completely agree with their assessment. Um, I'll mention one thing that seems completely contrary to everything I just said, though, throughout this presentation, in that I think people actually may want to look at treasuries for a very short-term kind of speculative play, because what's going on in Greece, I cannot believe that the rates, the 10-year rates in Italy, in Ireland, and Spain are as low as they are. And don't get me wrong, treasuries are probably the greatest bubble that's ever happened to mankind. It's going to be a complete disaster because the debt level is six times revenue, right? It can never be repaid, no one doubts that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we have some type of safe haven effect to the U.S. where the, the dollar and treasuries rise, and I'm talking again short term, you know, we mentioned earlier timing, what's that mean? I'm talking six months and just kind of mad money that you don't have to worry about. It's something I would look at. Okay, I want to open it up to questions. Jaya? Uh, uh, Rick, you were saying uh, that uh, talking with Ned Goodman, he suggested that even if companies are very good, what your hubris, you said that in the context of hubris, and you said, what would you do? What have, they can still go over the edge. Can you expand on that? I mean, how, how do you know whether they might go over the edge? Can I just say one thing? I think it's being recorded, so uh, you may want to repeat the question, otherwise it won't, won't be heard sure. on the CD. Uh, the gentleman asked, um, with regards to my discussion of hubris, uh, how can you tell if a company is going to go over the edge? And I think Ned's point is, particularly with regards to sub-billion market cap resource companies, no matter their quality, they go over the edge. When the market goes down, they throw out the babies with the bathwater. So pick a junior that you think is a spectacular junior. You know, whatever it is, if you compare the price it is today with the price it was at 2010, almost no matter the progress they made so far this decade, they're off between 50 and 90 percent. Okay. Uh, Adrian has made my point by finding an exception in a 4,000 entrant universe. I was waiting to trap somebody. And he obliged me. Um, but the truth is that, you know, almost irrespective of the quality of the company, the good companies, of course, are only down half, um, while the bad companies have ceased to exist. So that was, that was Ned's point. You, yes, you pick the best companies, and no, it doesn't really matter. When you are, as a sector, regarded as a superstar, it's time to do some self-assessment, recognize you want a superstar, and get out of the way. Do you anticipate a change in the dollar's place among the world's reserve currencies, or at least the diminishing of its status? And how would that affect your strategies? Sure. Yeah, I, this is Adrian. I definitely do, uh, but I think it's going to take a long time, longer than a lot of people think. You know, as you know, we always have a world-dominant power, economic, military, but also econ uh, economic and military power, but also tends to have the world's reserve currency. And um, if you look back at the last sort of changeover from the pound to the dollar, um, it was very, very clear to Britain that it had lost its dominance in the world, but it was equally clear that America was the next superpower. I think we're in a situation now where America hasn't yet recognized that, you know, 20 years from now it's no longer going to be the dominant power. And on the other side, China is 
not ready to assume that, that mantle, both for economic and military um, and political, political reasons. I mean, his capital markets aren't deep enough. Look what happened in the market, you know. China's not, go the, the yuan is not going to be the world's reserve currency anytime soon. Uh, but but we're, we're moving in a direction definitely away from the dollar, and we're also moving in a direction perhaps of, of some kind of basket of currencies or something like that. But it's, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. Yeah, I would just add to that, uh, I agree with Adrian. Um, the dollar is on a gentle downslope. Um, it is not going to happen that quickly. Uh, what you always want to keep in mind is that you can't beat something with nothing, right? At the moment, the competing currencies are the renminbi, Chinese renminbi, and the euro. <laughs> there are a number of problems over there, right? So, you know, however, however dirty uh, the dollar's laundry is, um, you know, you could argue that it's actually cleaner than anything else in the world. Uh, the yen, until recently, was a you know pretty good candidate, was well managed, hard money guys at the Bank of Japan. Uh, they've lost their nerve with Abe, so. Yeah, for the foreseeable future, uh, you know, we can play games, we can imagine scenarios of gold and, you know, submarines or something, but um, yeah, I think it's unlikely to uh, see any major change in that. Yeah. Please. Uh, I'm wondering how big an issue it is uh, as far as the Fed raising rates. Suppose they raise the rates just half percent or one percent, is it really going to make that much difference? Well, I'll add one thing. I. I can see them raising rates, right? Because they've, they've put themselves in a corner. They keep saying they're going to do it. And they look like idiots. I mean, they look like idiots already. You know, how, how long did it take to come up with that term quantitative easing? I'm sure they had committees and coming up with the, this kind of thing. And by the way, it, sh it should be qualitative easing, right? Because it's, you're not easing the quantity at all. You're increasing it. And you're diminishing the quality. So we should call it qualitative easing going forward. Um, now I lost my total train of thought of what I was. What uh, happens if there is interest rates? Oh, right. So remember, the, the Fed, though, has numerous mechanisms at their disposal. It's not just raising rates. I mean, it's like we see with qualitative easing. It's, it's actually going out and buying assets. They can buy any asset they want. And there's also the reserve requirement ratios that they can change. That hasn't been done in some time. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was a rate increase at the same time they did something to counterbalance it with, with flooding the money into the market or maybe changing the reserve requirements. I, that would not surprise me at all. Right, and I, I would just add something on that, that in, in Austrian theory, um, right, it, it's not the uh, percent change in the interest rate, right? In other words, when you go to 1% to 2%, that's 100% change in the interest rate. That's not um, what's important. The important thing is um, as you approach the natural interest rate, which is probably about 5% or something, there's a difference of opinion. It's the long-term human rate of interest, right, how we value the future. As you approach that, as you get closer and closer to that, your effects are going to magnify. Once you get over that, you're going to have much bigger effects. Okay, so you can kind of think of it as an island, the water's draining out. When the water first starts draining out, you get a very small little piece of land, and that doubles, triples, quadruples, but you know, it's a small effect. Okay? As you get further and further down the island, you start having bigger effects. Okay, so point being that a move from you know, up half a percent or one percent is unlikely to cause a lot of damage. Uh, it, it's really not until you pass about four or five percent that things really start hurting. And by hurting, that means specifically companies start going bust because capital is too expensive. Those busts cluster. The cluster is also known as a recession. Please. Since uh, you don't think there's a good possibility of having the U.S. lose their reserve currency, 
a lot of financial experts are talking about a currency collapse or a reset and could you have something like that and still maintain the dollar as a reserve currency and what would that do to the dollar in the U.S. stock market? You could, um, if you had a one-time devaluation for some reason, such as Franklin D. Roosevelt did, then, right, you could have a collapse and then it could subsequently still remain a reserve currency because the key is what people expect in the future. Right, so some crazy guy got in and, you know, whatever, devalued the currency, went through about a hyperinflation, at which point, for some reason, the world believed it would never happen again, then, yes, the U.S. would maintain its reserve currency status, which would also depend on how competing currencies are doing, right? So then would the dollar be a good investment? Compared to other currencies, it probably would not be that bad. Uh, maybe there's a difference of opinion. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, you'd have to look at it at that time, I think. I mean, right now, on any fundamental basis, the dollar is overvalued against most currencies, including the euro, and particularly against the Asian currencies. But that's on a, you know, on a long-term fundamental basis. And all the, all the tables, all the charts show that. Against most of the Asian currencies, is probably tw 20 to as much as 35% against the Malaysian ringgit. Um, but they can stay undervalued for a long, long time for a lot of reasons. But, yeah, you'd have to look at it at the time. I mean, right now, we have virtually nothing in foreign currencies. Um, that's a short-term sort of tactical um, uh, positioning. But we're not invested in foreign currencies right now. So you think the dollar's value would go down if they had some kind of a currency reset? Compared to what, I think, is what compared, they're saying. Yeah, compared to the other currencies. Yeah, a lot. I d I'm not expecting a reset anytime soon. I'm not expecting a crash in the dollar anytime soon. I, 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 I don't see that. I mean, I think your example of Roosevelt perhaps is a little, um, you know, Roosevelt devalued uh, the dollar against gold. Um, it was a one-time sort of government uh, fiat. I think the market might react differently if it was a disorderly market crash. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not expecting it, yeah. I have an anecdote that might go to that. We um, at Sprott have a client that's an Asian national pension scheme, and I don't want to get more specific than that. But I remember talking to the client a couple years ago about the arithmetic of the U.S. 10-year Treasury and saying to the client that, as an American, uh, the current situation really favored me. We painted stories on pieces of paper and sent them over there, and they sent us cars and stereos and all kinds of nice stuff. Um, and I, you know, I sort of described the U.S. 10-year treasury as sort of a great lie in terms of our ability to redeem the paper. And my counterpart, my Asian counterpart, looked at me and smiled and says, ah, yes, Mr. Rule, of course you're correct. But yours is a deep and transparent and liquid lie. It's the best lie that we have available to us, which I thought was a very interesting response. And he further said, you are quite correct in saying that we shouldn't trust you, and we don't. But we trust you more than we trust each other. So, <laughs> it was illuminating for me. I learned a lot from the client. Um, I'm interested in relative values and you'd mentioned uh, some of the gold stocks that would be uh, relatively well valued because we've been trashed since 2011 pretty badly. 
but I've been looking at the silver stocks instead because the traditional ratio was always 20 to 1 and there were some people that said 30 to 1. Well, I just calculated it this minute. It's 74 to 1. What do you think and what are your picks on uh, silver stocks? Well, the, the ratio you're referencing, just so everyone knows, is the, the it's the price of an ounce of gold relative to silver. It is at historical highs, um, or near historical highs. I, I like silver long term because it has completely different supply and demand dynamics from gold, right? It's every ounce of gold still exists out there, whereas in silver, it's for the most part consumed, meaning it cannot be brought into back into the market. In addition to that, silver is primarily a byproduct of other mining, copper, uh, some gold, zinc, etc. I think the latest estimates were maybe 70% of that mining of silver is basically, basically a byproduct of other mining. So if we have an inflationary recession, I think silver may be a great place to be, right? Because you're going to have a recession where, uh, where you're going to have gold spiking. At the same time, you're going to have industrial metals going down. And so that mining should dry up for industrial metals. And if that happens, the supply for silver should take a hit at the same time demand is skyrocketing. So I don't know about silver stocks per se, but I certainly like the concept of silver relative to gold as of right now. Okay. All right, we, we went over by a little bit. Uh, I hope you'll forgive us, but uh, thank you, everybody. This is... This is how to get in touch with everybody. Everybody's very approachable, so please do if you have any questions.